0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of James. We're reading James chapter 1 in its entirety. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures." Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and all rampant wickedness, and receive with, weakness the, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for the wonderful words of our living God. We thank you for that blessed word, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, who truly is that manna, the true manna, who feeds our souls as we feed on him. So bless us, Father, as we come before you this morning to hear your word that is so necessary for our growth and strength in this troubled world as we see it around us. And so we come rejoicing that we can come here in this quiet hour in peace and tranquility, knowing that you are here to bless each heart who truly has put their trust in you. For you are the one who keeps every mind in peace as we trust in the Lord with all our hearts. So bless us, Father, even now, and use us for your glory in this place, in this house of the Lord. And so, Father, as we come before you, we come to pray. We come to praise you. We come to pray to you, and we come, Father, to pray for others, that each one of us might have that blessing as we pray for one another, and know that you are our God and we are your people, and so we would bring Brother Ed before you this morning and pray for him as we know the seriousness of his unwellness, and so we would ever bring him before you, and Teresa and the family, Father, that you might bless them in every way, even as we pray for John Douglas and uh, David Griffith, and others who are shut and others who haven't been too well, And so we pray for our family, this wonderful church family where we love one another in such a way we would uphold each other in much prayers and supplications that you might bless us and use us for your glory in these coming winter months. Though it might be cold outside, we know it's warm in here for your glory, for your blessing, and for our hearts. So bless us, Father. We pray for our church family in every need. We pray for our sick, as you mentioned. We pray for the deacons and the board as they rule over so we might submit ourselves to them. We pray, Father, for our missionaries who have gone to the far-flung foreign fields to glorify you. How we praise you for missions and missionaries. We pray for each one. We pray for our hearts even here as we glorify you in reaching out into this community, touching those we are near, whether it's in a school or workshop, in a home, wherever we might be. Wherever you've placed us, we are touching other people. So bless us, Father, as we touch them with the presence of the Lord and the person of Christ and his power, that they might come to know him whom should know his life eternal. So bless them. Bless our hearts. Teach us your ways. Help us in every way, Father. We pray for our camps, Maple Spring and Sunny Break. What a great work they're doing, and we pray, Father, for them even now. now the Spirit of God will be with them in mighty power to keep their gospel pure and to teach them, to teach all these young people coming through in the summer months and the programs in the winter months, that many might find Christ as their personal Savior. So bless them, and bless us as we pray for them. and Bless our hearts as we look to you, Lord, for strength and encouragement in our daily living as we see it in the book of James. Give us wisdom, as the book of James tells us, Lord. That kind of wisdom that comes from above. For we know we can do nothing without you. We pray for our pastor. Bless him. Use him for your glory. And use our hearts as we uphold him in much prayer. For we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.
0: Isn't that beautiful? The wind and waves still know the voice of him who dwelt here below. And also reminded that the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord and all the trials of this life will be forgotten as we see him face to face and rejoice with our Lord and our God forevermore in glory. Now, before I, I begin this sermon, I actually wanted to make one more important announcement on uh, on Friday evening. We're going to be starting our evangelism training. We've got a couple of guys coming in from the lower mainland. And uh, we'll be doing this on Friday evening at seven and Saturday morning uh, at quarter to nine, and then that's going to run most of the day, and we'll have some food for you on Saturday. But uh, please do uh, take the opportunity to come out and uh, and learn with us and how to be better equipped to share our faith. This is uh, the program that we're going to be, be learning from. It's the Way of the Master. It may be familiar, with, or familiar to some of you. And it's basically using God's Word and using God's law really as a mirror to our hearts, and particularly the hearts of unbelievers, to show them their sin and their need of a Savior. And this is not just for our church. It's for, for anybody who's interested. So if you have a friend who you think might be interested in, in coming out, then please uh, feel free to invite them to come out. So Friday evening at 7 and then again uh, Saturday morning at, uh, at quarter to, to 9 and then running all day. So please do avail yourself of that opportunity. Now let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer before I start here this morning. Our Lord and our God, we want to thank you and praise you for your goodness and mercy, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that even behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. Lord, we don't always understand what you are doing, but Lord, we know that you are good. We know that you are loving and you are sovereign and you are wise. And Lord, I realize that there are some who have come here this morning with heavy hearts. Lord, some who have come here in the midst of a trial that maybe they are sick or facing severe relationship difficulties or financial difficulties. Lord, temptation. Lord Jesus, you know what it's like to live in a fallen world. Lord, you know what it's like to have temptation and to have trials, but to be completely victorious in the face of them. Lord Jesus, you are our high priest. You have been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So Lord, we look to you. We look to you as our example. We look to you as our strength. We look to you as our hope and our joy. And I pray, Father, that you would minister by your spirit to each one of our hearts this morning, to those who have come out of suffering, and trials for those who are in trials at the moment, and Lord, for all of us who will face trials in the future. So I pray, Father, that by your grace and for your glory, you would use these words to establish our hearts in Christ Jesus and to strengthen us so, Lord, when those trials come, we will be better able to glorify you even in the midst of them. For we ask this in the most precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So what did you expect out of life? Did you expect that life would be happy or easy or fun? Now, of course, many of us do experience happiness and fun and easy times in life from time to time, but how are you going to respond when life isn't easy and fun and happy? Are you going to mope your way through the trial that you face and gradually wander into depression? Or are you going to isolate yourself from other believers? Or are you going to get angry and shake your fist at God? As though God owed you something better in this life. So I want to ask you this morning what is your theology of suffering? The way that you experience, the way that you walk through the trials of life reveals what you believe about God and it reveals what you believe about yourself. So is the way that you walk through trials based on your presuppositions of how you think life should be or is it based on what God says about himself and about you from his holy scriptures? You see, James says in our passage here this morning that trials are actually good for us. They're good for us. They reveal, as I said, what what we believe about God. They also reveal our priorities. They reveal idols in our heart. And in Christians, trials will produce steadfastness, which in turn produces spiritual maturity. So trials produce real growth, In real Christians, trials reveal the reality of your faith. Now, if you remember from last week, I explained that that the common theme that threads its way throughout James is the heart of true faith, the heart of true faith. So the way you walk through trials will reveal to you and to others whether your faith is indeed genuine. Now, James here in this passage, remember, he's addressing brothers. And so he's assuming here that the people that he's speaking to are Christians, and he's assuming that they will pass the test. He's assuming that they will grow through their trials, not based on any goodness that is in them, but based on the goodness and faithfulness of God. He assumes that, that the trials will refine their faith like gold in a furnace. The 18th century Anglican minister J.C. Ryle said, How should you know who are the true Christians if following Christ was the way to be free from trouble? The winds of winter soon show us which of the trees are evergreen and which are not. So as we look around at the trees around us, most of the leaves are gone. Most of of the leaves have fallen from the trees. It was amazing, actually, about a week ago when the the temperature just plummeted. And it was was a week ago. It was not this past Friday, but the Friday before. And I don't know many of you would have seen on, on, on Saturday morning, the leaves were just falling from the trees like rain. I've never seen anything like it in my life. But there's also trees that appear to be evergreen, but they're not. So when we look around and you can look up in the hills and you can see that there's, there's larch trees that appear to be an evergreen. They have the appearance of, a, of, a, of an evergreen tree, but they, their, their needles turn yellow and fall off in the fall. So the trials of life, as J.C. Ryle said, the winds of winter reveal to us the reality of our faith. And we're all going to face trials at some point in our lives. Some of us are going to face trials because of our sin. Some of us are going to face trials because of the sin of others. And some of us are just going to face trials simply because we live in a fallen world. But we're all going to face trials. Trials mean different things to different people. For some people, missing their favorite TV show is a trial. For others, being stuck in traffic is a trial. But if that's all you think a trial is, just live a little bit longer and you will find out the reality of trials. At the other end of the spectrum are brothers and sisters around the world who face severe persecution as part of their daily lives simply because they call on the name of Christ. And many of you here know trials intimately. There are people in this church suffering through financial difficulties or relational difficulties or suffering through chronic health difficulties. And these are all trials. We're all going to face them, all of us. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So suffering isn't something strange. It's not something strange in this life because we live in a fallen world sufferings are a part of life god promises that we will face trials and that's why passages such as the one before us are so important and i believe it is part a major part of my role as a pastor in this church not only to walk with you through trials but to also prepare you for the inevitable trials that will come in your life i want to prepare you for suffering and that, I believe, is why James is talking about these things here. He's talking not only about walking through trials, but knowing that trials will eventually come. In November of 2009, when I was in my final semester at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I heard a sermon by, by Matt Chandler. And some of you may have heard of Matt Chandler. He's a pastor at a, at a church down in Texas. And this sermon was was really one of the most convicting sermons that I've ever heard in my life. It was from the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And he was talking about the way that so many of us want the glory, but we don't want the suffering. He says that all of us want to to put foreign armies to flight and stop the mouths of lions. But that wasn't the lot for many of of the Christians that the writer of Hebrews identifies. They were killed for their faith. They refused to be delivered because they wanted a better resurrection. That is the lot of many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. But it's not just the the trial of persecution, it's the trial of living in a fallen world that we all need to face. Now, Matt Chandler, after he preached this sermon, it was—I believe—it was actually a week to the day later. It was Thanksgiving in the United States, and he had just had breakfast, and and gotten a second cup of coffee, and was was sitting there watching his children in the living room. And he's—he's—I believe—he's just just over 30 years old, and all of a sudden he had a massive seizure, and just collapsed. And the next thing he knew, he woke up in the hospital. And the doctors told him that that he had a a huge tumor in his brain. And he expected, because of of his age and and his his health record, he expected that it was just going to be benign. But it turned out that it was actually a, a massive cancerous tumor. And... He thought, he had hoped that it had been encapsulated, but it hadn't. It. It, had it had actually spread. And so the next time we saw Matt Chandler, he was there with his head shaved and a, and a scar that went from here to here to here. And he was talking about the way that the Lord was using this trial in his life. And this was such an amazing story that even Associated Press picked up the story and published it around the world entitled, Local Pastor Faces Trial. And so the Lord was glorified in the way that Matt Chandler walked through this trial. And it wasn't by any strength that was in Matt Chandler. It was by the strength that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit at work in His heart. So all of us are going to face trials. It's not just older people who face trials. All of us. So let's see what James wants to teach us this morning about trials. In James 1, verses 2 to 4. Let me read this, this excerpt here again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what kind of trials do you think that James has in mind? He says when you meet trials of various kinds. The Greek word here can be translated as trials or temptations. The King James actually says when you fall into diverse temptations. And the word in the King James is actually spelled D-I-V-E-R-S. And many of you know I'm a scuba diver, so it left me kind of wondering what are divers' temptations. And I don't think James means here the temptation to go down too deep or to stay down too long. I kind of hoped that was going to get at least a little bit of a giggle from some. But, but seriously though, I don't think that temptations is, is the best word that we could use here. James will will discuss temptation as a particular form of trial in verses 12 to 14, but the context reveals that James is talking about believers facing tests of faith. He's saying that the purpose of these, these trials is to test our faith. You see, it's not, when it comes to a trial or a test, it's not as though God needs to know what's going on in our hearts. God is omniscient. And he knows what's going on in your heart far better than you do. But the trials of our faith are meant to reveal to us the health of our hearts. They show us just how healthy our heart is, how real our faith really is. We'll also reveal that to the others who are around us. But the tests aren't an end unto unto themselves, they have a deeper purpose. In God's plan, they were to reveal weak points and areas that need growth. A good teacher doesn't just set a test in order to be able to put a number or a letter on a report card. A good teacher writes a test in order to reveal to the student where their weak points are so that the student can then focus on those weak points and grow and learn what they didn't know before. But the wise teacher will also then set lesson plans to target those weak points. Now, of course, the Lord already knows these things, but He helps us to identify them so that we can see when it's coming and you can see patterns in your life. And you will see if you walk through life and look for what God has been doing, you will see recurring themes. How God is targeting weak points in your faith that are designed by him to cause you to grow stronger in your faith. So let's think for a moment about the addressees of this letter. Remember, James is writing this letter to Christian Jews who are dispersed outside of Palestine, out of Palestine as a result of the persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 12. And many of the trials that they would have been facing are addressed directly in this letter they faced oppression, they faced poverty, they faced temptation, they faced sickness, they faced persecution. And it's very likely that, that in this letter and in this particular passage that James had the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in mind when Jesus said in Matthew five eleven and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, some of our Bibles, I believe, wrongly translate this to say, Happy are you when others revile you. To be happy when you're being reviled? Would it make any sense? To be happy in the face of a trial? is probably insanity. But joy transcends our circumstances. Joy is far deeper than just singing, when you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. It's far deeper than, than, than that, the, the stiff upper lip that the British talk about. It's, it's, it's not about putting on a brave face. It's something deeper that comes from God at work in your heart. And it flows out that you can say, I trust God, no matter what is happening in your life. So James says in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's addressing this to brothers. Now, by the way, in the Greek, the plural term of the, the word that we translate brothers is actually more accurately translated siblings. So as such, it doesn't apply just to men, but to men and women. Men don't have the market cornered on suffering. It's men and women that he has in mind here. So it's not just Christian brothers, but Christian brothers and sisters. So for those of you who are brothers and sisters, for those who do have a real saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I can point you to the God of all comfort who is at work in your very circumstances. Now, of course, you may not understand what God is doing at the time of the trial. And you may never understand this side of heaven. But God is trustworthy. You can trust him. You may not know exactly what God is doing in every single circumstance, but you can be certain that God has placed you at this particular point in history, in this particular city, in this particular church, in the particular family that he has placed you in, in this world to glorify him. However, If you are here this morning as an unbeliever, someone who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you cannot know true joy. You might know fleeting happiness, but you're never going to know the deep joy that James is calling us to here, especially in the midst of a trial. James says in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, if you are not a Christian, I still want to glorify God and point you to the One who can save you from your sins. But you have no business... Being joyful. James says, turn your joy into gloom. Maybe the very trial that you are facing at this particular moment is ordained by God to cause you to turn away from your sin and turn to Him as your Lord and Savior. So James says, count it all joy, all joy when you meet trials does that strike you as odd? Does it strike you maybe even as impossible? To those in the world, it is impossible. To rejoice in the midst of trials doesn't make any sense to a watching world. To be joyful in the midst of trials surpasses all understanding. But you see, it's our understanding of who God is and our understanding of the purpose that God has in the midst of our trials that produces joy in the midst of trials as God works in our hearts. Joy doesn't come naturally in the midst of a trial. It doesn't. There's a temptation that we all face to do the things that I talked about earlier. We're all going to be tempted to to, to get angry or to get depressed in the midst of a trial. That's why it says, count it all joy or consider it all joy. You have to train your mind to be joyful in the midst of a trial. So as you meditate on gospel truths, as you meditate on God working in your heart, and as he does that, that supernatural, miraculous work by the power of his Holy Spirit, joy will result. James was confident that this would be the case in those who are Christians. But you can't manufacture joy on your own. You can't just screw up your courage and say, I'm going to be joyful. It doesn't work that way. Paul prays in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So, God has to do that. God has to fill you with joy and hope in the midst of a trial. The natural man is going to do the things that we talked about. The natural man is going to get angry. The natural man is going to get depressed. But we're not natural men and women, are we? We're supernatural men and women. We have the power of God at work on our hearts. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in the hearts of those who believe. Joy is listed as fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And the fruit of the Spirit is opposed to the works of the flesh. Paul says in Philippians 4 verses 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you exactly why you're facing the particular trial that you're facing but i can point you to the god of all comfort who is sovereign and loving and wise i can point you to the god who is at work even in the midst of your trials so christian christian you can trust that god is sovereign and that he loves you no matter what happens in your life your trials don't slip under his radar You can be confident that He loves you and is working everything out, everything, for His glory and for your good. You can trust that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And you can trust that those who He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God is working out all things For his glory and your good. And ultimately, suffering is part of our sanctification. It's ordained by God to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Most people want the glory, but they don't want the suffering. But in God's economy, glory does not come without a measure of suffering. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. It's the suffering and the trials that we face that cause us to endure. On October 18th, you may have heard of of the 100 year old Foja Singh who smashed the world record for running a marathon, 100 years old, and he ran a marathon. He completed the race in eight hours and 25 minutes. But if Mr. Singh had decided one day, I'm going to run a marathon, and went out the next day and ran a marathon, what do you think would have happened to Mr. Singh? He probably would have dropped dead at about the half-kilometer mark. The same would probably be true for me if I was to, to run a marathon. But you see, Mr. Singh trained for many years. Interestingly, he didn't start really training for a marathon until he was 89. But he went out and ran daily. Gradually increasing his endurance. And that's the way trials work. God brings trials into our lives in order to cause endurance. There are things that some of you are going through at the moment that would have destroyed your faith 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, or even a year ago. But because God is at work in your heart and giving you the gift of faith and causing you to persevere in the midst of trials and causing you to know him more and to trust him more, despite what it is that you are facing, you are able to endure and God is being glorified. Paul uses the same word that that I translated there as endurance in Romans 5 verses 3 to 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul says we rejoice in suffering because we know that God is at work in us. And see the process there. Suffering, then endurance, then character, then hope then glory because of God's love. And Peter uses a similar formula in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter acknowledges that trials do produce grief. But remember, grief is not the opposite of joy. You can have joy at this moment, even in the midst of profound grief. But see again the trials. That trials reveal genuine faith and produce praise and glory and honor, and they lead to salvation. You see, endurance is not the final product of trials. The product of trials, I don't believe James means to have as a single solitary virtue. That's why he doesn't list what the result is. He just talks about you being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now we need to remember here that that we're not talking about Christian perfection. We will never be perfect this side of glory. So when James here talks about being perfect, he is talking about about faith and about maturity of the faith. It's about being complete and, and growing strong in the faith. So God does not promise to deliver you out of your trials, but he does promise to deliver you through your trials. Let me say that again. God does not promise to deliver you out of your trials, but he does promise to deliver you through your trials. But if you remember from last week, I explained that, that many wonder why it, why James doesn't highlight gospel truths. He doesn't really talk about gospel deliverance here explicitly. But if you remember, I explained what John MacArthur says, that James Assumed a gospel understanding in those whom he addressed in this letter, he assumed that they knew the gospel truths. But you see, I can't make that assumption. I can't know for a fact that everybody here is a genuine believer. So I'm going to do what I, I mentioned that, that Spurgeon did with any text of Scripture, is he made a beeline to the cross. So I want to make a beeline to the cross, and I want to remind us of gospel truths. There may be some here who are experiencing trials but aren't feeling particularly joyful. And you might be wondering, am I legitimately saved? And some of you, you might not be. But in others of us, we might be at a weak point, and I want to encourage us to look at the trajectory of our lives. Are you moving closer to God? Are you experiencing more and more joy in the midst of trials? You can't then say, I'm going to be joyful, as though that was a means to your salvation. Salvation is by faith alone. This is the gospel, that God created us to be in relationship with with him. But then as a result of Adam's sin, that relationship was broken. And every human being who was born after Adam and Eve was born sinful, born in rebellion against God, separated from God, and justly deserving of His wrath. However, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful human flesh but completely without sin. Completely without sin. Yet he gave up his life on the cross for our sins. The Father's wrath poured out on him and our place. And he died on the cross, but rose again on the third day. And those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have turned away from their sin to follow Jesus, have their guilt given to Jesus Christ and His righteousness given to them. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So we need to filter everything that we read in James through the grid of gospel truths, that salvation is by faith alone. But as we'll see, although it is by alone, salvation by faith is never alone. Works will result. Faith will result in true Christians. Joy will result in true Christians. So let's go back for a moment to Romans chapter 5 for a moment and see the ground of Paul's argument. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's the same for Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who were by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's the gospel, the gospel that provides the ground for our joy in the midst of trials. So we need to train ourselves in the midst of our trials to remind ourselves of gospel truths. They need to be the default. When, you, when you're in the midst of a trial and you face a temptation to, to get angry with God or to, to think, woe is me, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself that Jesus Christ died so that you might have life. The gospel is not only a promise of what God has done, it is also a promise of what God will do. J. Thomas refers to this as eschatological anticipated joy. Now we anticipate what God will do in our lives, especially when he returns. That's eschatology, the study of last things. So we have a joy as we anticipate what God is going to do in the future. We know that we're, it's not just about this particular moment. It's not just about what we are dealing with right now. It is about the promises that Jesus Christ is coming again. And we hope in his return. So James highlights this in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. It's the promise of future reward. The crown of life is a coming reward that we will, we will receive when Jesus Christ returns. He does the same thing in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that's where our ultimate hope lies. Not in this life, but in the next life. Think of those Christians who are facing severe persecution. Think of those who know abject poverty. Think of those who are, of those who are suffering through chronic physical illness. Think of those who are facing constant relational difficulties with a husband or wife. If if these people have in mind as their goal getting out of that particular trial, they're going to be disappointed because God has never promised to deliver you, as I said earlier, from the trial. He has promised to deliver you through the trial. So if you have as your goal peace or prosperity or health, you're going to be disappointed because God doesn't promise those things. Yes, we may receive those things in this life, but the vast majority of Christians who have lived throughout all of history have not received those things. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about what, what he faced. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28 lists some of the sufferings that Paul faced. Imprisonment, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times receiving 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods once stoned, once three times shipwrecked, a night and day adrift adrift in the sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without, without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me from anxiety for all the churches." But through all of those things, Paul was joyful. Isn't that amazing? Joyful in the midst of all of that suffering, all of those trials. But Paul says if his hope was in this life, then he was to be pitied. If our hope is in this life, we are to be pitied. So where does your hope lie? Does your hope lie in peace or in prosperity or in health? What are your goals in life? How do your goals line up with God's goals for your life? Let me put it another way. If your goals are for anything other than what God has promised to you in Scripture, you will be disappointed. Christian, what has God promised you in Scripture? He didn't promise you a rose garden. He hasn't promised you your best life now. He has promised you eternity with him in heaven. And so your goal should be to glorify God now in the midst of whatever trials you are facing. And when you have that as your goal, God will deliver because he has promised to sanctify you through those very trials that you were struggling through. Now, for many years, my goal was to get married. I wanted to get married so badly. Now, of course, being married isn't a bad thing. Scripture talks about a wife as a good thing and, and calls it a sign of God's favor or God's blessing. However, Nowhere in Scripture are we promised marriage. Nowhere. So singleness was a trial for me. And for about 17 years, I wanted to get married. I still want to get married. But the trial aspect lasted for most of that time. Nothing was happening. Now, I wasn't one of those guys who just sits there playing Xbox hoping she's going to come along as many of you can testify this I've been, uh, to this, I've been very intentional. And, and I sought to, by God's grace, equip myself to be a godly husband. And I sought to, to use my singleness for the glory of God and to see it as a time of preparation for marriage should the Lord provide a wife. But for 17 years, I saw friend after friend after friend get married and I never met the one. For John, there was no helper found who was fit for him. But the degree to which I struggled revealed how much marriage had become an idol in my heart. But something gradually happened. I began to see how God was changing me through that trial. I began to see that he was teaching me so much about his faithfulness and his sovereignty that I never would have known otherwise. And that trial was tailor-made by a God who loves me and wants to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. And as I grew in my relationship with God, my contentment grew. And as I learned more about his character, my trust grew. And now it appears as though the Lord has blessed me with a woman who far exceeds my greatest hopes. Now, I know that the Lord may have other plans. And the Lord may redirect. Until we have made a covenant with God and each other, the Lord may redirect. And of course, I hope that that doesn't happen. But if it does happen, I will know that God is good. I will know that God is faithful. I will know that God is trustworthy. And I will know that he will take me through that trial. Now, I've seen this go the other way, too. I know a woman who was seemingly a faithful follower of Jesus Christ for many years. She professed sound doctrine, and she appeared to be living it out except for in one key area, her singleness. For her, marriage was an idol. She so desperately wanted to get married that when a guy came along who was interested in her, she was willing to to throw away all of her standards that she had professed for so many years. This guy was not a strong Christian. He was not mature spiritually and therefore incapable of leading her in marriage. His doctrine was weak at best. He had just been through a messy divorce. So, so many of the standards that she had were dis- were thrown away because she had been deceived by her idol. Now, most of the single people who are here won't be thinking about marriage for at least a few years. But now is the time to be preparing for that. Now is the time to be Checking your heart and looking for idols in your heart. To be breaking down that idol before it gets strong. Now, of course, many who are in this room have been married for many years, but what idols do you have in your marriage? Is your husband or your wife not living up to your expectations in certain areas? And you can tell that this is an idol by the way you react when they don't meet your expectations. If you get angry or withdraw from them when they don't do what you want them to do, that's an idol. And God has tailor-made that particular issue to reveal the idol in your heart and to cause you to break it down. And of course, difficulties in marriage are a trial. They are a trial. But when you you see what God is doing in the midst of that trial, you're, you're allowing God to transform you through it. But this isn't just true for relational trials. It's true for all trials. Whether it's health trials, or financial trials, or employment trials... Or trials with your, your job or your children or your church. These trials are all tailor-made, and they all come to you from the hand of a loving, sovereign God. And God is using those trials to chip away at the sin in your life. You may have heard the illustration of, of somebody um, coming to Michelangelo, and as as he was, as he was chipping away at this this block of marble and this this beautiful statue was coming out. They said, Michelangelo, how how do you make such beautiful statues? And he said, I just chip away at everything from this block of marble that is not part of my statue. And God is doing that in our lives. He is chipping away with skilled hands, chipping away at the sin in your life. to expose who you were called to be in Jesus Christ. But it's not always a delicate chipping away process, is it? Sometimes huge chunks come away. Sometimes God is smashing idols in our hearts, and it's painful. It hurts. But when you think about the fact that it's coming from God's love, it changes the way you experience it. So fellow Christian, whether you are in the midst of a trial or just coming out of a trial or just about to enter into a trial, rejoice, rejoice because God loves you and he is sovereign over every single aspect of your life. So you can trust him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would drive these truths into our hearts, deep into our hearts, Lord. Help us to meditate on them. Help us to grow strong in these truths. Lord, so that you can minister your peace by your Holy Spirit, and Lord, that we can also minister peace to one another in the midst of trials. I pray, Lord, that we will be a people who are joyful, in the midst of everything that you bring to us by your sovereign loving hand. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.